the Anesthesia Podcast. And welcome to our November 2020 podcast. This month we'll be talking about the use of intravenous lignocaine infusions for post-operative analgesia and the associated clinical considerations and controversies. We're delighted to be joined with the authors of two recently published papers, one a consensus statement and the other an editorial that accompanies it. In a consensus statement by Fu et al., various recommendations are presented, including the need for local procedures, approvals and protocols, patient consent, um, aspects of dosing and delivery, various clinical considerations, and issues around recognising and managing local anaesthetic toxicity. This is the only consensus statement of its kind, and despite the use of intravenous lignocaine for several decades and its increasing popularity in recent times. In the editorial, Panita Maguire talked from the perspective of the Safe Anesthesia Liaison Group, who were aware of several cases of patient harm and near misses, and only, one, only recently became available the widespread use of intravenous lignocaine. They discussed the divergence of opinion even amongst members within their own group, but also why they were unable to en- endorse the use of what is currently an unlicensed medication. So I'll start first with the lead author of the consensus statement, Dr. Owen Fu from Edinburgh. So good morning, Owen. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about you and your background and, and how you became involved in uh, writing the consensus statement? Okay, I'm a, I'm a consultant anesthetist based at the Western General Hospital in Edinburgh. It's the largest colorectal unit in Scotland. We have over uh, 14 consultant surgeons, colorectal surgeons. And uh, just to give you an idea of how many um, colon, colonic egg resections we do, uh, we do at least 450 cases per year of colonic resection. So we're a very big unit. And apart from that, we also do some urology, like cystectomies and, and, and such like. And I got involved in intravenous lidocaine when uh, our unit got interested in laparoscopic surgery. And because of that, uh, you know, our epidural use, it, it, was, it, it seemed um, uh, better to have a different technique rather than using an, an epidural for laparoscopic surgery. So with the new change in surgical technique, we felt that we had to move forward and uh, we chose intravenous lidocaine because it seemed to, uh, to fit the profile of a drug that uh, had advantages in, um, in colonic surgery. And we started our program in 2011 and, and, uh, and up, up to now we've had an uh, experience of over 3,300 uh, patients who've administered IV lidocaine too. So in terms of uh, experience, we probably have the largest experience in the UK. Wow. And we're also delighted to be joined by Professor J.D. Panda. Uh, good morning, J.D. Hello. Uh, so how did you become involved in, in this topic uh, in your role on Safe Anesthesia Liaison Group? Thank you. Well, um, I'm professor in, in Oxford and I also chair or co-chair the Safe Anesthesia Liaison Group. And uh, as you know, SALG receives um, reports from various uh, quarters, sometimes independently, sometimes via NHS improvement. Uh, and we were made aware um, of, uh, as you mentioned, um, several cases of harm near miss, particularly one that I referred to in the editorial uh, that was also reported in the press, which was unfortunately a fatality. And it's um, incumbent on us to um, investigate, is too strong a word, but certainly to examine and explore what the issues um, are and try and make things safer. Um in, in this sense, in this context, we, we clearly learned that the use of IV lidocaine was becoming quite widespread. 
um, and uh, this was our focus. And in fact, we we, we sort of part commissioned through contacts with uh, Andrew Smith, who's uh, also on the consensus group. It was almost our hope that we could reach uh, a point where a consensus statement would uh, provide more information and a consistent way of, of delivering this drug. So actually, the, the initial step was was um, to, to try and get to a point of a, of a true consensus statement. So I'm going to start with a couple of questions for Erwin, because I, I think a lot of our listeners will be really interested to know some of the basics about how to use intravenous lignocaine. Given your experience and given some of the points raised in the paper, um, I guess a really good place to start would be how it should be uh, dosed and used and uh, how you recommend uh, lignocaine infusions are used uh, both intraoperatively and for postoperative pain management. Okay, in, in terms of, um, of, of, of dosing, I, I, you know, I think, it, as Jayib said, it's very important to have a, as a safe dose in a drug that we know, you know, given in big quantities, can be fatal, as uh, as, as demonstrated in in the uh, in the case that uh, Jayib referred to in in the editorial. And uh, and one thing that we realize with uh, intravenous lidocaine is that the the serious events is usually due to human error. In all the fatalities, the 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 major problems have been inadvertent, uh, you know, sort of uh, use of the drug without realizing its potency. Uh, in, For example, in, in the index case, it was unfamiliarity of the, 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 the two uh, regimens. One was from cardiac arrhythmias and the other for acute pain. They got mixed up and, uh, and basically the cardiac arrhythmia um, protocol was given. So when we started our, uh, our dosing um, uh, regimen in Edinburgh, we actually went for fixed dose, you know, two doses uh, that was programmed into a pump so that, that the no calculation error could be made. We subsequently then went on to, uh, you know, once again experience with that, to actually use a, um, a dose based on ideal body weight. And the reason why we did that was because from uh, one of our papers on plasma concentrations, we found that having a fixed dose and you've got someone that is quite slight is not a very good idea because you can achieve quite high um, concentrations. The other thing that we learned from the uh, from that particular paper is also it's not only the dose that matters; it's actually the duration of in- infusion and how quickly you achieve that dose. So, as the rate of achieving the dose is 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 very very important as well. And I'd like to refer back to the uh, you know the original paper by Foldis back in the sixties of the so-called toxic threshold. That was uh, done in volunteers, in 12 volunteers, where they were given a massive dose. It's quite a big dose, doses that we will not be using these days you know, in a very, very short time, time scale. You know, they were giving a, a dose of uh, uh, equivalent of maybe 20 times the dose that we were giving at the, you know, in, in this day and age. So, uh, so again, the, uh, the toxic dose that uh, they describe is only in terms of context, it's only a, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's seen when you're giving a big dose in a short space of time. However, if the dose is achieved over a much, much gradual time, you know, who knows, the, uh, the toxic uh, concentration that, uh, that is dangerous, you know, may not be the dose that has been this described. Nevertheless, we decided that safety is paramount. So we actually altered our doses to, uh, in, in terms of, uh, uh, to make sure it's safer. We actually used 1.5 milligrams per kilogram of ideal body weight. We chose ideal body weight simply because, uh, you know, if you use total body weight, 
again, in all the studies that we've come across so far, have not specified whether it's total body weight or ideal body weight that's been used. I suspect it was total, bo uh, total body weight. If you use ideal body weight, you're far safer. It means your, your obese patients uh, you know, will not get a dose that, is, uh, that, is, that can be seen as, uh, as dangerous. And we also have a limit to how much we're able to give per hour. We set our limit at 120 milligrams per, per hour. So before I just bring JD on and, and uh, a few aspects about local anaesthetic toxicity, um, Erwin, what type of patients would you say benefit the most from the use of a lignocaine infusion? Uh, I know you mentioned some of the, uh, the work that you're involved with, but um, are there particular subsets of uh, patients, for example, those undergoing general surgery, or is it applicable to other types of operations as well? I would say that the, the most evidence would come from uh, abdominal surgery and, uh, and in particular visceral pain. There is, there is good evidence you know, from uh, animal work as, as well as, you know, as from the uh, meta-analysis that uh, abdominal surgery uh, has the clearest signal for, for, for analgesia. And it brings me to, to another point as, as well. It, you know, a, a, a lot of the, uh, the studies, in fact, majority of the studies, we use, we mention acute pain, you know, acute rest pain and, and you know, a, a numerical number. But as we all know, that pain itself as a number is going out of fashion. We're now moving towards a much more sort of biopsychosocial model of pain. And, and that fits in more to, uh, to what IV lidocaine actually is able to provide. The, the signals that's come from the Cochrane um, collaboration, two things that have showed that has been uh, absolutely positive in, in their uh, analysis was the patient satisfaction as well as a reduction of uh, opioid during the uh, post anesthetic care unit so the base the, the first few the first uh, 4 to 6 hours you know after or first 24 hours after um, after, after surgery and that fits in nicely with the the uh, you know what we know nowadays of uh, of uh, enhanced recovery whereby we expect patients to be start moving and things like that so if you take that into account then IV lidocaine is actually a, a very useful in this context so i'll say intraabdominal laparoscopic in particular uh, followed by open. Jenny, there's something um, a little bit strange, isn't there, when you review the literature on lignocaine toxicity and that a lot of the reports are of its use as a topical agent. For example, uh, there was a really nice uh, case report of a trainee um, who experienced lignocaine toxicity when she went on an awake uh, intubation course. And the reports time and time and time again of its use as a topical agent. But it's very difficult to find uh, reports or trial data or various other things about its use as an intravenous agent. Uh, is there anything that can explain that? Well, that's a good point. We speculated on this uh, in the editorial, and I and I put that section in. Um, this paradox almost that, that, that all the reports of toxicity in the literature certainly are, are, are made, well, when I say all, the vast majority are related to situations where you're desperately trying to avoid uh, intravenous injection or, or high plasma levels, um, and and yet when you're deliberately injecting it into into the vascular system, uh, it, it's paradoxically um, much safer. I think um, you know slightly cheeky or tongue in cheek as that comment was. Um, I think that there are several possible reasons. I mean, one is that the majority of reports overall of toxicity relate to drugs like bupivacaine, which which are arguably more toxic. And another is 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 that um, that that lidocaine intravenously is relatively new 
um, phenomenon compared with with injections. So perhaps we're not at the stage where those reports have have built up yet. And it could be, as as Erwin says, that actually the the careful titration, by and large, is is is, is working. And it's only those uh, you know happily rare instances where excessive doses get to be administered by for whatever reasons. Owen, is there a problem with clinical trials that are being conducted of lupincane infusions in, in, in terms of failure to report adverse effects? Or do you think that there's another explanation why this has sort of failed to come out in the trials of its use? I think the first thing to say that most trials are, so, are small. Okay, so and to actually detect a, a rare event such as a, uh, a significant cardiac event, for example, a myocardial infarction or ventricular fibrillation is actually uh, is, is so rare that you need large numbers. And also, most of the trials uh, do not specifically collect data on adverse events. It was, you know, it's incidental finding as such as to see whether IV lidocaine had any, um, you know, adverse effects. So I think if you don't go looking for it, you're not going to find it. So I suspect that the, uh, you know, the the, the, the the large trial that I'm involved at the moment, the Allegro trial, which is probably the largest trial in, of intravenous lidocaine uh, in, with 562 patients, we do specify, uh, you know, collecting adverse events data. So we were actively seeking for uh, for adverse events. But, ha- but having said that, you know, it's uh, if there are um, events to, to be found, you know, looking at our own unit, we, we, we do uh, audits regularly and uh, and also we actually uh, investigate every single, uh, you know, possibility of an adverse event. We haven't found uh, any major events. I, I think simply because our doses are so low. When I first started using this, I had to go through uh, ethics to... Um, uh, you know, to actually get consent for our unit to use intravenous lidocaine. And the chair of the ethics committee was actually a cardiologist. And when he saw the doses that we're using, he said that, you know, he, he, he actually laughed at it. He's saying, you know, you, your, your doses are so low compared to what we are, we are, we are used to. You know, you, you're not likely to see any, any difficulties, in particular when you're only infusing it for 12 hours. But that's the other case in point. The duration is very, very important. We know uh, that uh, up to 12 hours, the um, pharmacokinetics is linear pharmacokinetics. But after that, uh, you know, you can get into, uh, you know, uh, unfamiliar territory. So what? So the, the safest way is to, uh, to stay within the linear uh, pharmacokinetics uh, range of, uh, of the duration. And there's something that we actually made a point in, in our, our guidelines that, you know, you can go up to 24 hours, but uh, but certainly from our cardiologist uh, colleagues, as soon as they hit 24 hours, they half the dose of, of their lidocaine because of of, uh, of, their, of their experience of uh, accumulation. And you mentioned that you went to ethics to when you decided to start using this medication in this way. What was it that prompted you to trial its use or to see if it helped patients or um, because obviously I guess in the UK you were probably one of the first people in this uh, in, in this new popularity that the cane infusions have found. Was it based on discussions with others from elsewhere? Was it based on uh, reports in the literature? How, how did you decide to sort of pioneer this new um, use of, of lignocaine? Actually, the uh, the use of Ivy lignocaine is really widespread in uh, northern North America. In Canada in particular, 
he was very popular. And uh, uh, we had trainees going across to, to, to Canada. And, uh, and when I found out that they were, they were using you know, intravenous lidocaine, um, that, um, I got interested in, in, in how they were using it. And um, that was my first encounter in, in terms of using IV lidocaine. And then when I did a, lo- a lot more uh, looking into uh, the literature and the, a lot of, of uh, there was the majority of the early uh, papers were actually from, from, from America. And JD, do you think that, that it's biologically plausible that the cane does indeed work as, a, as an analgesic? <laughs> this is where it gets interesting. So um, in the dose-response relationships, um, there's no published mechanism for its efficacy um, at all, really. Uh, we presented uh, work by others, actually, that, that had reviewed this and just summarised it uh, in, a, in a table, um, where in the doses that it's given... Um, there are no uh, receptors that are um, activated or inhibited at, at the EC50, you know, half the half the maximal dose, which means that in the conventional way of looking at receptor pharmacology, it's you know there's nothing actually in in the middle of the dose range being 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 acted upon, which is which is curious. The receptors that are uh, um, you could say interacted with at much lower doses would be fully saturated at this at the clinical doses used, and there are lots of other receptors uh, that require much higher doses, um, and no one has yet put this uh, receptor pharmacology within a wider framework of of analgesic mechanisms, and and coupled with that, it, it's unclear whether the effect is purported to be very peripheral, say at nerve terminals, or axonal, or spinal cord, or central nervous system in the brain. I mean, it could be all of the above. Um, there are. Um, I mean, clearly, people, the people are doing research, and there's a lot. And, and Erwin, I'm sure, will make additional comments to this. But there are people looking at other effects, like anti-inflammatory effects, uh, you know, on white cell function, and, and 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 so on. And these are entirely plausible. But no one has yet drawn these uh, elements together to put in a sort of coherent theory uh, of of analgesia. Certainly, the way that we look at analgesic mechanisms currently, um, that there's no plausible mechanism that I can understand or can offer to explain its efficacy. Owen, do you want to come in on that? Yes, actually, um, that's not strictly true, because if you, you mentioned already, uh, using the table by Hermans, <laughs> that the muscarinic M1, M2, NMDA receptors are, are fully saturated even b- before it reaches the uh, clinical relevant concentrations. Yeah. Yeah. And I already mentioned that uh, in terms of bowel surgery, one of the, the key things with bowel surgery is visceral pain. And certainly M1, M2 would be involved with uh, mm. um, you know, bowel function. So that's the first thing to say. Secondly, NMDA, NMDA receptors uh, are very, uh, obviously is, is, is very important in particular in, in terms of, uh, of, of wind-up. And, as, uh, and what we have found on our unit is before we started using IV lidocaine, a lot of our patients postoperatively would have re- required some form of ketamine in addition to the opiates to manage their pain. Since we started using uh, IV lidocaine from our, our audits, the, our use of uh, subcut ketamine has reduced dramatically. So again, there's plausibility in the sense of, you know, we've got clinical experience that demonstrate that, you know, that uh, you know, since we started using IV lidocaine, you know, we have not required uh, as much subcut ketamine. That's the first thing to say. And secondly, uh, 
Jaidi has, uh, you know, uh, has very kindly redrawn the in the, the table, and uh, and it's actually uh, put into uh, the, the the three receptors uh, NAV one point eight TLR four and the nicotinic acetylene receptor, you know, which is very near the toxic range. But Hermans himself, actually, in his, uh, you know, when he actually discussed the limitations of his, uh, you know, of his review, did say that uh, number one, although uh, these receptors are very near the toxic range, the EC50 doesn't tell you how flat the dose response is going to be. So it doesn't matter if it's, uh, you know, if the dose response is very flat, you can still get some effect of these receptors working at the doses that we're talking about. And secondly, uh, in, in when you've got inflammation, uh, it will alter the receptor sensitivity as well. And, and, and thirdly, uh, the point I'd like to make also, you know, that uh, although uh, you mentioned that this is not uh, regarded as part of the uh, accepted pain pathways, in the scientific evidence uh, 2020, the, uh, um, uh, the Australian acute pain sort of Bible for uh, for acute pain management, all these receptors that we've talked about are included in their sort of receptor, a group of receptors that may partake in the, the acute pain pathways. Just to come back on the the, the dose response of the um, NMDA type receptors that are fully saturated, the, the point there that, that we made is that if, if they are involved and if that's the case, then actually you could even go even lower in the in the dose in the concentrations being used because you don't need them to be fully you know oversaturated. You 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 could you could actually reduce the dose even further, and and that may be something that obviously would be beneficial if 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 you if you do that. Well, it's something that that uh, we have talked about. And uh, in in the sense that you know, although we use 1.5 milligrams per kilogram mm. as our our sort of starting dose, uh, you know, in some patients, one milligram might be might be equally efficacious. But unfortunately, there's been no studies which actually looked at a at a, a clinical dose response curve mm. as, in uh, in uh, clinical studies. Yeah, and, and I guess this might well lead might preempt a question that uh, that Mike's going to ask us, but uh, it, this leads to the the sort of rational use, you know, from from basic science to clinical translation, the sort of bench to bedside, the the sort of uh, drug discovery pathway. That that if if we say that these receptors activated, inhibited at the lowest doses are the relevant ones, if we take that standpoint as our starting point. Uh, then it's rational to use the very lowest doses uh, at around, you know, at or around EC50 or just above EC50 or saturate them at much lower doses uh, to achieve that efficacy. Um, and, and that's what I was getting at when I said that it's it's we, we seem to be doing things in reverse. What we do need is the dose response curves for clinical effect to match or at least design those studies to match our understanding of what we get from the basic science. Erwin, there's a, a section in the recommendations about the use of uh, off-label medications, and uh, I guess we're all familiar with uh, with the use of medications off-label and off-license, etc. Um, does this have a, are any consequences for the fact that lidocaine infusions would be used off-label, and, and how should clinicians change their own practice uh, because of that? I think the, the whole purpose of the guidelines was to provide a safe way of delivering what we all know is a high-risk medication 
you know, if given in uh, in the wrong way. And uh, and in terms of clinical governance, I think what is important is that you, uh, you know, it's basically, you know, I can even come from my own experience, is that you get your surgeons on board. They have to, you know, everybody has to be singing from the, from the same hymn sheet. They all have to agree that that's the way you would like to proceed, including your, your clinical pharmacist. Uh, because and and also we also invited our medical physics uh, uh, as a sort of lead to, to join us because obviously it has to be delivered uh, using a pump that is uh, is non that's non tamper that, that uh, and 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 so increase to, to increase the safety. So I think once you got a group going, then you need to then get your trust to actually agree that this is a um, is something that you like to actually do. And given the, the the evidence, you know that you know the, the one thing that I, I would say is that uh, the all the the, the Cochrane analysis is very useful. It does give us a a basis for trying to actually to see where, where we're going. But the one thing I would I would say is that you know, coming back to this point about acute pain, you know, if you're using numbers as acute pain, then it doesn't actually give the whole picture of what IV lidocaine can actually do for you. If you take into account patient satisfaction, they get a sense of euphoria. I'm, I'm not sure whether both any of you have seen a patient that's been on intravenous lidocaine. Have you seen a, a patient that's been given intravenous lidocaine and, yeah. uh, and how they respond uh, in the first 12 hours? And, 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 and in, in fact, I would always say to my trainees, don't ask me because I'm biased. Go and ask the nurses looking after the patients. And, uh, they would, and the nurses on our HDU unit when we first started using it, because when we started using it on, on, with one, uh, one surgeon, they actually say, please give us patients who's been on IV lidocaine. They're much easier to, 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 uh, to manage. They mobilize better. And, and, uh, and the, our skeptical surgeons uh, would then look at this, uh, the other surgeon who's, uh, whose patient had IV lidocaine, would then say, I want what this surgeon, you know, what this anesthetist has given to this other patient. And that was how we actually got consensus a lot of the time, you know, of uh, getting our laggards in terms of our surgical laggards to actually accept. And I know that, uh, and, and now it's uh, if it comes to the stage whereby the, the surgeon insists that uh, intravenous lidocaine is given if, uh, you know, in, in, in their enhanced recovery patients. And I think to me that is, uh, again, you know, it's, it's, I haven't got the scientific evidence to show, I haven't got a trial to show that, although hopefully, you know, with the uh, Allegro study, we can, we, we can show that the quality of recovery is better. I, I think that you need to go through the, uh, you know, the, the, the processes of uh, the clinical governance to, 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 to make sure that uh, everybody is on the same hymn sheet and then so that uh, you can present it to, to, to the patients. Yeah, JD? So, I mean, your question was around the licensing and whether that causes difficulties. And, and this is where, from the perspective of SALG, it, it does clearly become serious, as it were, and does cause serious difficulties in terms of what SALG can do in terms of, you could say, endorsing uh, guidelines such as these for an unlicensed um, drug or unlicensed use of drug. And actually, there are two things here that are unlicensed. One is the, the way that lidocaine is being used, and the second is the pump itself because that needs to be appropriately licensed too. And this is speaking strictly from, so not, not to um, criticise what Erwin said about the, the clinical effects that he's seeing, but I'm talking strictly around the regulatory aspects. Um, 
it's it's about you could say risks and responsibility so when a manufacturer a drug manufacturer or pump manufacturer licenses um the 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 drug for a particular use uh, and it's used in that way they are clearly they clearly have the the full responsibility for all the consequences uh and they've published those and it's gone through through the regulatory hurdles um equivalently if uh the royal college or the association then sanctions or endorses to a large extent we as an organization uh, carry that risk and responsibility uh, as as well. At the moment, um, it's the individual clinician uh, who who is entitled, as we explained, to administer uh, unlicensed medications. But at the moment, all that risk is carried by the individual clinicians and and or by their trust if the trust has uh, accepted uh, the clinician's recommendations for certain guidelines. So in this framework, um, it's around where those legal uh, responsibilities and risks are, are carried, either by the manufacturer uh, or by the individual doctor and their, and all their trust or the um, specialty it, itself. And on this occasion, with this particular debate that we're having, um, in essence, in short, for reasons I've explained, it was impossible for us to offer that institutional endorsement uh, of these particular guidelines. It's to remind people that 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 they are free to, you know, and certainly within research frameworks and positively encouraged to study and investigate uh, this. It's, it's a good thing. You know, we don't want to stifle all innovation. Um, but they're also, if they feel uncomfortable or unpersuaded by the evidence, I mean, there's, Irwin's made a very strong case, a very you could say, persuasive case, but there will be people unpersuaded by that. There is absolutely no requirement for them to give use or permit IV lidocaine in patients under their care if they're transferred to them. It's completely safe to stop it at any point. And that was the reminder that yeah. we um, suggested. And you call that a, a license to stop? It's a complete license to stop, yeah. It, it's not a life-saving drug. It can be stopped at any time. If a patient's transferred to your care with this drug by somebody else who passionately believes in its use but transfers uh, this situation to, to, to your care, uh, there is absolutely no harm done simply by switching it off and disconnecting it. None whatsoever. I think the the thing that I found so fascinating with the publication of these papers was uh, how widespread the use of lignocaine is uh, that I've seen uh, in my own practice, uh, going throughout the region as a trainee and, and in my own hospital as a consultant. There are uh, many people I know of that are, uh, use lignocaine are very passionate about it and uh, talk, talk in the same terms that Irwin does about um, you know the, how the patients are after, uh, after surgery. Uh, but what I found fascinating was that the, this is the first um, document given guidelines for its use. And uh, although that might exist local local documents, this is uh, hopefully something that will use nationally will standardise practice and hopefully mm. uh, hopefully make things safer. And I, I guess where we where we can all agree is that um, both papers taken together will hopefully increase the safety uh, of uh, patients under our care and also patients receiving lignocaine infusions. I think that's right. If I can, if I can interject there, I think that's right. I think, um, I think it is important that that Urban and his group have, have issued a set of, you know, a consistent reference point. You could say 
that that people you know and if if people are going to use it i think i guess the least we can hope for is they do re- refer to to owen's uh, guidelines for consistency that that's clearly better than than vast you know vastly different random guidelines or no guidelines at all um but um i'm also struck by um a lot of what Irwin says around, you could almost say the immeasurables, you know, and he's, he said, look, Cochrane hasn't been measuring perhaps the right thing simply by the number. And some of the ways that Irwin's that describing the patients, it almost raises interesting questions of, is there a better way to, to metricize um, what effects uh, are, are are being achieved by this? Because I agree that the, the supporters are extremely passionate and describe the efficacy in 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 really quite interesting ways that don't relate to conventional measures. And and I wonder if this is a lesson going forward: is is if Irwin, if Irwin with his specialist knowledge and interest, can create a, a new metric, uh, you know, uh, that would be pretty pretty good. I don't know if you have any early ideas on that, Irwin. Well, in in a way, we do. I mean, we actually, in the Allegro study, we've actually abandoned the use of, uh, sort of acute pain measurements on, on its own. What we've done is we use the overall benefit of analgesia, the OBES score, which includes uh, not only a pain score, but also patient satisfaction and some of the uh, the side effects of uh, of of opioids as well. And I think this overall score uh, is, is a far better measure on how a patient is recovering um, in, in terms of their, uh, from, from the surgery. Because let, let's face it, uh, you know, if if you have a, a, a research nurse who's come into to your room, you know, after you've been through, uh, tried to get to the toilet and ask you about your your uh, your rest pain scores, it's going to be much higher than somebody's been been sitting in bed for the last for the last hour doing nothing. So it's not in contact, unfortunately. You know, when 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 they ask you know what's your your, your score at rest, it sounds uh, it sounds like the score itself will generate lots of debate. <laughs> I'm sure it will. Yeah, but it's uh, in, in fact the the the, uh, the, the OBAS score was published in the BJA about 2010. Okay. Uh, so it's uh, it's, a, it's a valid a validated score. That's why we, we we chose it. But of course we we can refine it in even further. But but certainly as a as a starting point that that would be useful. And I guess uh, just just a, a couple of points to finish would be where do you both see we should go next what are the future research priorities um you know we've got the some very standard guide guidelines and consensus now um we've also got the arguments for and against the use of lingocaine um but what needs to happen next in in this area jd shall i go first um yeah. i think i think the I think there's this is a, a rich area for basic science, and to go back to those receptors, there's clearly a lot of work to be done, uh, a, a, you know, around some some very basic pharmacology, which I think would be interesting. Um, I think, furthermore, that could be um, extended to you know the pain pathways and the frameworks for understanding of what pain is from a basic science perspective. A huge amount of research there. You know, you could think straight away of fMRI studies with patients undergoing intravenous infusions of lidocaine at various dosages that would be fascinating um 
So I think there's a lot of research there. Other drugs is another potential. You know, why why lidocaine? Why not? Um, you know, say prilocaine or, or, or something else. You know, it's, it's it's. I mean, who knows? The the, the world is out there, as it were, or, or derivatives of lidocaine. Um, so so those would be my sort of starters for ten in terms of future research, as well as the dosage, the concentration response studies that we alluded to before. Allegro um, sounds like an interesting study, Owen. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Allegro is a uh, placebo-controlled randomized trial, randomized controlled trial on uh, the uh, recovery of bowel function after laparoscopic surgery. We are looking for uh, 500, 562 patients, and so far we have actually got uh, over 20 um, units who are actually you know, in, in, in the UK who are contributing to this study. We have achieved over 300 patients now, but unfortunately with COVID, it's going to take much longer to complete the, uh, the study itself. So the primary outcome is recovery of bowel function, but the secondary outcome measures include things like uh, you know quality of recovery, uh, uh, the the, the score in terms of energies uh, uh, requirements, uh, the, in terms of pain scores, we're using the OBAS, and and also length of stay and uh, and some other uh, secondary measures, and hopefully it will give us a clearer picture on. Uh, on, on whether IV lidocaine is actually useful. I, I suspect that uh, it will be useful in very specific uh, uh, sort of uh, surgeries, and in particular, uh, you know, what, what I'm saying is abdominal surgery. And, uh, and as the other key thing that we're looking at now, now is in terms of bowel handling. Because a lot of the studies, uh, they've included things like, for example, cholecystectomies, uh, hysterectomies, uh, you know, in abdominal surgery. But in terms of bowel handling, it's minimal uh, bowel handling. And you just wonder whether it's the bowel handling that actually gives the, uh, well, in terms of the, the, the benefit of lidocaine, the more bowel handling you have, the likelihood is that uh, it'd be more efficacious. Um, I have a question for Owen. Do you, Owen, do you think there's any chance or hope that the the drug manufacturers would actually license the use? I mean, as you're building up the evidence and you're doing these trials and there are basic scientists developing the evidence, either lidocaine or a close derivative of it, do you think there's any chance that that'll happen? Are you persuading them or trying to convince them to license it? Unfortunately, I would like uh, lidocaine is uh, is such a well known drug, yeah. and it's it's uh, the, we have to come back to I suppose to commercial aspects. Mm. You know, if if they're going to actually uh, uh, put any any thought or any, any further thought into this drug, they, mm. they probably need to have some uh, you know some measurable outcome in terms of their of their finances. So the mm. answer is probably mm. no. They're not interested because it's uh, you know there's 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 no commercial no. aspects associated associated with with uh, with lidocaine. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame. I'm sorry to say that you know it's uh, yeah. You know, yeah. Both papers are a real uh, step forward in this area, uh, and there's obviously a lot more work to do. Um, and I'm sure our listeners will really enjoy listening to the opinions and the science on either side of, of the discussion, uh, which has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, so thank you very much, Owen, uh, and thank you very much, JD. Thank you. Thank you. Um, 
And I remind all the listeners that both papers uh, will be made freely available uh, to read all this week. Uh, and you can d- keep discussion going on Twitter. Certainly with Erwin. Erwin will be on Twitter. Uh, JD's not found his way to Twitter yet, but we're trying to persuade him. Uh, or you can uh, obviously send your own letters and comments and data and, and various things as, as, as letters or, or a science letter to us, a new type of article, uh, which we now accept and you can read about on the website. Uh, and we look forward to receiving those. Uh, so thank you very much, Erwin. Uh, thank you very much, JD. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And, uh, we'll see you all next time. The Anesthesia Podcast.